Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Today, my guest is Dave Hillis, who, if you're not familiar with Dave, Dave played a major role in the birth of the grunge scene. He was an engineer who worked with bands like Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Temple of the Dog, and so many others. And as you'll hear in this interview, it was a very exciting time to be working in Seattle, you know, working with these bands that grew to be massive artists and who defined a genre of music that inspires people to this day. So Dave has a lot of insight into what it was like to be part of the scene back then, what went into some of these albums, and inside of this interview we also get into some conversation about Pearl Jam's 10 album, which was obviously a huge success. And that album there, specifically for me, has a lot of really cool tones to it. And we get into some of the process of working on that record here. So I think you're going to find this episode to be really fun and really interesting. So let's jump into this interview. This is my interview with Dave Hillis. Dave Hillis, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix Podcast. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Amazing. For people who might not be familiar with you or your background, can you give us a little bit of that story on how you got into music and who you are, what you do, and how you got to ultimately what, what you're doing now? Sure. Long story. Uh, you know, I started out as a, you know, kind of a heavy metal guitar playing kid. Um, uh, worked at a record store, like really early, you know, got a job at like 15 and a half at a record store. And uh, just saved all my money and started like trying to get into studios and you know little little studios or wherever i could I, I was so naive obviously at the time and right from the beginning i started writing my own stuff really early on and um i did demos you know went through different band people you know we were kids basically trying to do but i was lucky enough to do a demo Early on, uh, like I was about 17, uh, not even 18 yet, and uh, they got picked up on Metal Blade Records, uh, on Metal Massacre 5, which was a big compilation back in the day that, you know, lots of metal bands came off of, everybody from Metallica and Slayer and Celtic Frost, you name, Voivod, you Good record it. to be so, on, basically. <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was a cool, like, wow, it kind of, I felt like, oh, man, I can do this, you know? And so that just started it. And then, you know, I went through very, you know, that last couple of years, we actually put out a couple of records um, on Enigma. Uh, so I kind of was very early got a taste of independent record releases and being able to record and go into studios. I mean, they were horrible, basically, you know, total didn't know what we were doing or anything. But, you know, being thrown into that, I started learning, you know, what it, what it was about making records and writing songs and doing that. And that just kind of progressed. And, you know, being in the Seattle scene before the Seattle scene in quotes there started, um, we were more traveling to San Francisco because uh, we kind of couldn't get hit by a bus really in the Northwest. We're not in Seattle the suburbs. We did well, but couldn't really do much in the city center. It was, um, and anyway, so San Francisco, Berkeley was the happening place where Metallica and Exodus and everybody were coming out of. So we would travel down there and that's how I kind of, you know, got into 
you know, wanting to, you know, pursue this and do this and, um, saw how you could DIY so much of it and, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and as the Seattle kind of scene started, you know, the grunge thing hap started happening at first. I was kind of like, not into, I was like, what, you know, I was in, coming from a different space. Um, but trying to make a long story short, uh, you know, it was a lot of musical chairs going on in Seattle where there was definitely a booming music scene. I mean, there was rehearsal spaces everywhere. There was clubs everywhere to play. Um, there was a million bands, like there was no yet set sound. It was everything from glam, like people copying LA stuff to thrash to punk, a lot of punk, big punk rock scene and everything in between. Um, and so everybody was finding their, their sound and, and so, you know, became friends with everybody as everybody was in different bands at one time or another, you were in a band with that guy or that guy. So I have, you know, and so a lot of the people ended up making it big, you know, Stone Gossip, Pearl Jam or Mike Cookie or any of those people were all, we were all in the same boat and we're all at the same parties, all at the same shows or whatever, you know, same social scene. And we were all trying to make it and find our, sound or a trip or a thing and uh so that's kind of where i started from and then i randomly but luckily got a job uh i actually did a demo at london bridge studios for one of my many incarnations of different projects i was trying and london bridge studios was the most well another good thing about Seattle, we had a lot of recording studios i don't know why we weren't a mecca but there was just a big music scene there. And, um, you know, it was a place that had a Neve and a two inch studer. I mean, that alone was a big deal. Um, and some bands had already, you know, Mother Love Bone had already done stuff there, Queens, right? You know, different local bands that were making it, but yet we had a place like LA would have, but in town was a cool, it was a helpful thing. Um, and so I obviously grad, you know, was drawn to that place and wanted to know about, so I booked time. Um, and then just coincidentally, after I had recorded there, some demos there with um, a guy named, uh, well, I go, won't go into that yet, but I, I ended up running into Rick Parasher, one of the owners and producer of, uh, ended up for Pearl Jam and Blind Mel and then tons of people, Temple of Dog, all that. And he said, hey, how'd it go at the studio? You know, I saw you in there. He recognized me. I said, it went great. Um, and, and he was like, hey, you want to, you know, later we were out at a met him in this club. And he's a very famous club called The Vogue in Seattle where everybody was at. And he was like, hey, you want to come back with me later to the studio and hang out? Maybe bring some people? And I was like, what? I'm like, yeah. And so we went. And I think he knew that I knew everybody. And I think it was a way to, you know, help promote, get people to see the studio, really, to be honest. And stuff like that but we ended up talking and saw my interest in everything and um and all that and he said hey you know don gilmore who was his assistant at the time who ended up doing lincoln park and a lot of big bands but he was his assistant at the time who was the guy who recorded my demo and i didn't realize at the time that rick said that was his first time recording anybody without me so that's why he asked me how it went. So just, you know, this is the beginnings of everybody's careers, basically. And um, 
So he mentioned, yeah, so I'm going to be looking for somebody. And I just, you know, that was like light bulb moment. I went, <laughs> yeah, the doors open at that point. <laughs> like, I wasn't necessarily planning on this kind of a job, but it seemed like a good idea. And of course, it, I was already at home with my four tracks and eight tracks. And I'd been actually 16 track at one point. And, uh, you know, I'd already kind of dove into that with no intention of being an engineer. It's more so that I could get my own stuff done because I wanted to be a rock star or whatever. <laughs> you know, I was more about making records, uh, but it seemed like a way I could do it. And so anyway, this was, seemed like an opportunity. So I hounded him for a couple of weeks. One day he had me come in and kind of interview me as it were, but I brought tapes with me. I brought all these things to impress him. And he's like, I don't, I don't, I don't care about any of that. I, I don't really. And Rick was, had a very unique personality. So he was like, I, I don't care anything about any of that. And, you know, and he's like, why do you want to do this? And I gave him all these thought out, really deep answers. And he just kind of looked, yeah, that's not really what I'm looking. I, I was like, everything I said was wrong. He didn't want to hear any of that stuff you think you'd want to hear. And I'm like, oh, man. And then he handed me a physics book, which I still have. It's on my shelf right there. Um, and goes, you know, study a little bit of this and then come back on this day. And I'm like, what? physics like a hardback physics book from university of washington because that's where you went and i'm like what is i want to be geez, i want to make records what the hell obviously later on i realized physics frequencies da, da 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 and all the reasons why that's what i should be doing so he was kind of making a point to me anyway so i come back and the first day he was finishing up mixes of temple of the dog which um and I'd already known all these guys and all that. So it was already, I already knew what was going on around town. Like I knew they were doing that and all that. So I was kind of, you know, it wasn't like a big deal. I'm like, whatever. It's just those dude, you know, friends I know. And there's this record he's working on. And he's like, all right. And he, and he basically just threw me into the fire. Like I hadn't worked on a new console before or anything like that. And he was just like, start doing this, do this, do that. And like the patch bay, I was just, you know, oh God, and all that. And then just shortly after that, he was starting a new record with a band called Love and Ice out of Portland that was just got signed to Interscope for quite a large deal. It's a big deal. And day one, you know, like I'm only there, like this is probably my first week of work. And it's like, we're starting a major label record that's booked out for weeks. And it was just like, here's how we do it, go. And just like, you know, he knew that I knew about guitars because being a guitar player and, you know, I was kind of fanatic about guitars and pedals and amps and all that stuff where he came. He didn't really come from that world as much. He's a classically trained pianist and really musically smart and fantastic engineer. But I kind of knew the cool hit factors about what how to get cool guitar tones and sounds and things like that. So he knew that and played with that and knew how to fit me in. And we were just off and running. And then we had like a good, a, you know, all of a sudden everything started blowing up. We're doing Mookie Blayhawk demos and then this and that. And everything just, it, it was all of a sudden four years passed and all the, some of the biggest records of that decade were recorded. So the right we, time, the right place. I was landed in the right place, the right time. Uh, although, believe me, I was at every place all the time. So I was playing my cards everywhere. So yeah, well, it's, inter 
It's interesting because you did mention earlier that like, you know, the scene was kind of outside of where you lived. So you would travel to those places all the time. Yeah, it was like, you know, it was a little suburb. It's like, you know, 30 miles outside of Seattle, you know. But I think that's cool. I think that's a really important part of it because sometimes you do have to just go where that scene is, right? If you're in a small place, uh, you know, you, you do need to go to where the music's happening. And I, I couldn't agree more. It's like, that was kind of my mantra, you know, like I did the same even later on, uh, you know, well, like I said earlier, we would go to San Francisco. I mean, we were young enough to take the risk. Hey, let's go there and make it happen. And then later on, I was like very adamant about, I'd go to LA like at least once a month. I eventually moved down to, um, same with New York. I would purposely, I just knew if I didn't go there, they're not going to come to me. So I just, you have to like, you have to put yourself out there for sure. Of course. Well, it sounds also like networking played a major role in your career. And so a lot of that probably came from spreading out all over the place and going to where the music was and connecting with these bands. And ultimately, you know, it sounds like it led to you getting the studio gig as well, you know, just hanging out with someone in a bar and, and chatting, right? So it was, you know, I mean, and it's a different time than now, of course, but you know, I was young and I thought about 24 seven was always in my mind. So all I thought about was, you know, doing this and making it or how can I do, you know, what can I do next? And I was just really, you know, and actually I'll say this about the whole Seattle scene too. Not, it was just coincidental that everybody was really ambitious, you know, like Stone and Jeff Lament from Program were ambitious. Chris Cornell was ambitious. You know, everybody was really ambitious. Um, and they had a motive. They they wanted to be successful at what they did on their terms, which is super cool. But, um, you know, none of that was just... Jerry Cantrell is another example. Incredibly ambitious guy. Um, and they did it on their terms. And they just took, you know, no was not acceptable kind of thing. Um, in a cool way, but, you know, we all, you know, we were, we hustled and um, networked and all that. It was an important factor. I mean, things are a little different now. It's a different world. We have the internet, you know, um, I don't just don't even know if music in the industry is even that same element or same fire to it that it did then, or I don't know how things have changed. I don't know how to describe it really, but, you know, then it was a big dream to kind of, you know, you could go and if you, the dream was there, if you hustle hard enough there, you could maybe get a record deal and kind of, make it. and the other thing that was important about that too, that I feel it's missing little tangent here is that, you know, you would do demo after demo after demo um, and play show after show after show. And you would be good by the time, you know, maybe some, maybe you did get a shot at a demo or at a record deal. And you know what they do? They give you money to go demo some more and then you go demo and demo until they actually signed you so when you're making a record you're really good by the time you make a record i see and you have studio etiquette and you have studio not you know you know how it works in the past year you know a lot of times last 10 years to even maybe 15 20 years you'll have a band that'll uh get a rehearsal room write 10 songs and i think they're ready to make a record and it's their first, they're coming in, making a record without ever going through those steps. Um, but yet they want it to sound like the last platinum record you worked. And you, it's, and, and the, and the budgets are different. You know, we might've had $200,000 for a baby band 
budget at the time we called it for first signing on a label. You know, now some people are killing themselves to come up with five grand or two grand or whatever it might be. So between the budget and the actual work you had, you did before you even recorded has changed a lot too. So absolutely. Well, it's interesting because I feel like these days you had mentioned that like the scene is just very different and then people aren't, people don't necessarily have that same drive to travel or, you know, that, that was just all that existed back in that, in that time uh, when like grunge was starting to grow. But like, I feel like these days it can still apply, but it's just, it's how you treat yourself online. Like if anything, we're now, we're now a little bit more connected to people online or we can get access to people a lot easier, but it's just a matter of putting yourself out there. And I think that that's something that a lot of people don't even think about. You know, they're like intimidated to send off an email or try, just try something to, to put themselves out in front of people. And I think that's where people are losing that, uh, that steam, so to speak, of, you know, to, to get their band out there. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of, and I think where it came for, for me is before the grunge stuff, it was really from the, you know, underground metal scene because it was about sending cassette tapes out, getting into fanzines. We booked our tours by ourselves. We were kids, 17, 18, 19 year old kids. And we're like booking tours through the United States by writing letters, like actual letters and mailing them in the book, you know? And like sending cassette tapes and getting a review in a, ma- in a fanzine that some kid, some other state put together with stapler and Xeroxing. And you'd say, hey, uh, like, for instance, I'll just drop some names like Possessed. I became friends with Possessed or Death Angel. And they would say, hey, I'm a band from Seattle. If you come up here, we'll get you a show with us. Can we come down there and play with you guys? Hell yeah. And that's how we started doing it. Same, we crossed over some punk rock things. So we would do it with DRI or Corrosion Conforming, whoever. Before you know it, we've traveled all over the Western part of the United States and Southwest. And, um, and that's how we would do it. And I always thought, man, with this internet thing, that's really going to blow up. Now we can, it's even better than fanzines. But yet it seems like people do less of that, you know? Yeah, I think people are scared. Well, I sound like an old man now, but no, but be. it's true. But it's totally <laughs> true. I I think that people are scared these days to put themselves out there, and it it almost seems like because the internet is so big and vast, and everyone's on there, that it it almost seems like more of an impossibility. Whereas, like just going to the neighboring city and going to someone's office or whatever, like that's a little bit more doable because it's like very accessible, maybe. But 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 I don't know. I, I totally agree with that. That I think you know we were fearless then. We were like young, just. Fearless. It, it was also like, I mean, we, you know, we had tons of disaster stories, believe me, like vans breaking down middle of nowhere, no money. I mean, but we pulled off some of the most crazy stuff to get, keep going that like, those are the best stories of my life, you know? Um, but it was like, we're running away from home kind of stuff, you know, and out meeting all these people out on the road and, uh, and who knew that all, a lot of these people are like super famous legends now, you know? At the time, everybody was on the same playing field, and it was it was exciting. Totally, yeah. You need sometimes to have those battle scars of being on tour and whatnot to to toughen you up and, and make you realize, like, okay, I'm hungry for this. I want this. Like, I know it, I can do it. You know? So yeah, I mean, you learn you definitely learn quick how much touring can suck until you are, you know, the Rolling Stones or something, and yeah, hotels and planes and stuff, but. It sucks most of the time. Yeah, I think touring is one of those things where you do it if you do it very quickly in like the 
in your band's history, you'll very quickly decide whether or not this is the right band for you and the right people yeah, for exactly. you. Exactly. Well, you know, and I had the ex- I had I had I had the full experience. I had the early days, like I said, booking as kids, and like we book something, we'd be in Las Vegas somewhere or or wherever, and there'd be I'm thinking I'm talking to some like older guy or something and it's a 17 year old kid booking me in some place i'm like what you know and um so i had that whole experience where we you know no hotels sleeping in the back of a gas station waking up to the ding ding when the cars would roll over the thing i mean we did all that too when i was on a major label i you know we had tour budgets and that kind of sucked too in just a different way you know because we were still the opening man we you know weren't so you know, it's, it is what it is till you get to a certain point, but you got, you know, that's how you pay your way up. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's very interesting. And one question that I did want to ask you is that, I mean, you, you played such a big part in those early days of grunge music and you worked with so many of those artists that just absolutely blew, blew up. And I'm curious to know, like, what was it like behind the scenes at that time, like working on the birth of a genre, so to speak, you know, was it, what what was the general attitude of, of the musicians like at that point? Because I feel like these days, there's a lot of people that are looking to replicate other people's music. And obviously grunge kind of seemingly came out of nowhere for a lot of people. And, you know, the people that you were working with were those people that were creating that sound. So I'm just curious to know, like, what, what was that like at the time? Well, it's, it's a little tricky to achieve because grunge is such a blanket term that press came up with so like nobody was sitting around going we're creating grunge and i think all the like when we were doing recording pearl jam to me that was the furthest thing from grunge in the world to me I, to me i was i remember going I, I was into different music at that period of time and so when they were doing their stuff i'm like what stone what are they guys writing that sounds like old rock to me it sounds like bad company or something like what's going you know being my smart ass self to them. I was like, what, what are they doing? And um, yet then there's mud honey to me that sounded okay. If there's a term grunge, they're grunge, but you know, he was kind of doing, Mark was doing Iggy pop kind of, you know, that Stooges kind of thing. And to me, they were all doing way different things. Alice definitely came from metal. And um, you know, then on the other side of the bridge, there was like, things that were already a little bit ahead, but like Queen's who were definitely metal, you know, and, and these guys were moving away from that for sure. But it's funny. So nothing was blank. Like it, that's a blanket that came later. Everybody else was just kind of doing their thing. And, but really um, focused, like working with like Pearl Jam or Alice Chains in the studio or Chris in the studio or any of them. I mean, there was no plan around it was complete focus and work, like all seriousness. Um, like focus is the best word I could just say. They were so dialed into what they were doing and how they wanted it and all that. And then working with Rick, he was the same way, no nonsense guy uh, in the studio, outside, you know, everybody had their lives outside, but in the studio, it was, it was like all work and no play. I mean, it was like we were, getting stuff done and when the budgets grew and we had labels coming that was new for seattle was in la you know so people took it you know we knew we were playing with the big boys and there was you know no room for errors so we were everybody was very self-conscious about the decisions they were making even business-wise you know 
Um, those guys were in their tight knit group of uh, business decisions. Um, and so that's kind of what made Seattle unique in that sense. Uh, but behind the scenes, you know, like before the work really started, when everything was kind of blossoming and people were developing, it was a fun, you know, you were out at parties, you were out at the shows, you were out at the cl clubs uh, that were the good, the hangouts and everybody was networking and schmoozing and being cool and just being young and all that and developing your style and your dread, all that stuff was happening. Um, and that was fun. That was cool. But like I said, once like things started hitting and business kicked in, things got serious real quick. And we were lucky to have like some good studios and some good um, producers and engineers in town that were capable to keep up. There was of the caliber to do that. So it was a rare, it was like definitely a moment in time. That's cool. Yeah. I kind of figured that, you know, it would be a little bit more like, I don't know if this is the right way, right term for it, like, but like a little bit more like free spirited in, the, in, in that kind of early stage of, you know, these bands coming out, like the Pearl Jams and Soundgardens and all that, because because they were just working on it for, on their own. But then obviously, like you said, like, you know, you start to get into the, the big boy world where there's like the major label money coming in. And, and I feel like at that point, there would have probably been, you know, someone up top saying like, you guys should sound more like this band or like this other band's doing well. So like, what, you know, was, was there any of that happening? See, that's, this is where, uh, some smarts happened here. Um, and being outside of LA and being in Seattle is where we, they were re you know, there's a lot of us bucking that system. Like we were able to be up there and say, we're not. And, and, and because the LA scene so blew up, it was at its peak there it was time for a rebellion against that, you know? So there was that. And I'll, I'll go even deeper that people probably don't bring up much or it gets mentioned anywhere, but with the management, like um, Susan Silver and Kelly Curtis um, and Ken Deans, even people who are behind Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains and, and a number of other people from the scene and early mother love bone and all that. They had come, well, not sort of Silver, Susan, but Ken Deans and, and, and uh, Kelly Curtis, they had, they had managed Heart previously back in the day in the 70s. So they were lucky enough, they've already went through this major label kind of scenario and kind of knew, you know, they've been around the block a little bit. So very, you know, lucky enough, they spotted this, you know, this scene starting to happen again and like some superstars are about to be made. and you know, when, and they're all local, we're all like people together there and then them representing Allison and Pearl and Mo Lobo and all those guys, you know, and they made a very tight knit uh, bond there. And they basically, and then when the bidding wars came, like they really had the power. It was like, you don't have to tell, you can't tell us anything. We know what's going on and it's right here. You know, so they they were able to seize that control early on, which is very rare. Um, and they were very hard about it, too. Like, you know, they didn't they didn't bend. I mean, you see how I mean, to this day, you know, they don't, you know, all the way through to the nap or whatever, all the all the Pearl Jam stuff they did. They always stayed and owned their stuff. They were. But that was a nice, lucky, another, you know, one time in history pairing of people at the right place, right time kind of thing. Uh, you know, it was like lightning struck there at that moment in Seattle. So 
But that, you know, I think it could have been a different story if there was that scene and maybe, you know, some of the hot young or whatever LA managers came up or New York people came in and it could have went all sideways. It could have been a whole different story. But I think that's a lot of what curtailed and kept things more true and real for that period. And those guys having long careers, as opposed to a lot of the disasters that you saw come out of Los Angeles in different places where they boom and then bloom and then disintegrated, you know. Although, I mean, we had our casualties all over the place. You know, we had the drug casualties, but I mean, there was always that underbelly of that going to be there. And the more, you know, nobody obviously it proves that nobody's uh, bulletproof against those kinds of things. For sure. Well, it definitely impacted the the um, the persona of grunge music and 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 those and even the music itself, right? And so, and there was a time of innocence where it really wasn't that, and then it got dark, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I'm I'm curious to know, like hypothetically, if uh, you know, if let's say like Alice in Chains or Soundgarden's or or Nirvana's were still around, like, what do you think grunge would sound like these days? Oh, I mean. I- well, once again, I don't really, you know, I don't think, I mean, I guess it's all interpretation. Um, I don't really think of some of those bands grungy. I, just the word grungy, I guess as an adjective, it reminds me of some of the earlier sub pop stuff. Like, I think that's where it was, really came from. Actually, it came from a, um, an off, a writer, music critic from England, uh, Everett True. I think he's the one who coined that. And it came from when Mudhoney went over to England and he he coined that in an NME or Melly Maker article. And then it just went, oh, all Seattle's grunge. Because I don't really think that that's some of that, some of that. Maybe some tone, maybe some early sound garden stuff. I mean, we were it was really what it was. There was a lot of metal influence and there was a lot of punk rock influence, and it became a fusion of that. Alice was even came from a different thing. They were more metal. Um, and I think another big thing that happened, could, even the, the their first really good demo they did at, uh, they did at London Bridge with Rick Prosher, for the, the one that got them signed, was very metal, kind of Guns N' Roses influence kind of thing. Um, by the time they got to be doing uh, Facelift and especially Dirt, you know, Dave Jordan was a big part of that producing those records he like started slowing the. it was his idea to slow the tempos down that really changed a lot when they started changing those tempos and making it more you know heavier in that sense that's um, a really good point that, that was a big difference big difference and and i i'm part of why i know first well i know numerous reasons but one of them was so after they did facelift uh they were going to do dirt with uh, Rick Parasher producing and, and I was engineering. And so we, we started the record. Um, and so we did a whole version of dirt, which later kind of just became to be known as the demos for dirt because they ended up scrapping it. And a lot of that had to do from my, from my knowledge, what I heard, what I could see was going on was the labels got cold feet. Um, you know, Rick wasn't, quite as big yet as Dave Jordan and, you know, labels like the hedge their bets and um, Dave Jordan was, you know, doing James addiction, you know, he, and all his history um, and the success with the first record, they felt, you know, we want to do it with, let's 
scrap this and let's have you know Dave Jordan. There's probably more to that story, I'm sure, on the scene. But um, the difference between the version of Dirt we did and the version that came out was tempos. I mean, the first thing I noticed, whoa, they slowed everything down again. Um, not to say that I think what we did was really cool. It still sounded really like a great record, but definitely gave that whole different perspective. It wouldn't be the dirt record everybody loves and knows now if they didn't come in and do his match to it. Um, but yeah, then again, Rick Rocher is a genius at what he does too. So it's like having two great producers do it, but that's the way history wrote it. And, uh, um, and it all worked out for everybody, but that's, that's a main thing. I think that kind of behind the scene type thing that I think changed the way the Seattle sound was developing that maybe most people wouldn't know offhand. Um, I think also with Soundgarden, maybe then going on and doing bigger records with other producers, even though they did it on the bridge, they brought in outside guys. There was some continuity at the studios sometimes. Nirvana to me was not really a Seattle band. They were, but weren't, you know, they didn't record there really. I mean, they did some early stuff there, but you know, the big records were all done out of the city and they were never a hang around town, see at parties type of band. They weren't really in our scene. Um, although I did see them a number of times at the club that I spoke of the Vogue when they were first starting, but, um, and I was in a band with Jason Everman, the first, one of their guitar players for a minute, but they kind of were, their whole career had a different direct, you know, they went a different route, but yet they're probably the definitive Seattle band, which is funny. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how that works out. But but you brought up a really interesting point there about the tempos and how that just was transforming the, the genre at the time. And I think it just really says a lot about you know, the power of slight movements in, in your productions, like like a tempo, you know, that's something that a lot of people don't think about. They, a lot of people just write a song at whatever feels comfortable to them. And yeah, they probably do sound good. But sometimes when you slow things down, you realize like maybe you're getting more emotion out of the, the vocals or just instru instrumentally, it just sounds more emotionally and you connect, you connect with people a little bit more. So I think that's a really cool point to, to bring up there. Also speeding up too. Uh, yeah, I mean, too. I'm like, and I learned this from, from Rick working as a mentor, I definitely learned one of the main things I learned from him is pre-production. He was just a stickler and absolutely spent a lot of time on pre-production before you're even recording, you know, in the studio thinking about doing anything. He was in there going through the songs with the band, hearing the arrangements, um, getting tempos i mean really like that's where it all starts um funny i say that because then dave jordan was the guy who slowed him down but they both probably you know they had that keen sensibility to know that that's where it starts like um and i later on you know i did a uh, when I, I had a band that got signed to a label to island records that rick produced so at one point i was his engineer and the other, next time He's producing me, which was all kinds of <laughs> uh, personality clashes, but but in a good way. But uh, you know, he would like take my songs and arrange them, and I'm like, no, man, that doesn't seem right at all, you know. And we hashed that out. But those bit, those parts, that's what made things, you know, pro. That's when it came. Okay, this is this is 
now we're talking and then it seemed for real. Um, and I think, you know, that happens a lot these days. Uh, you know, the art of record making itself is not really done like it was from the seventies, eighties, nineties. I mean, I think the nineties really was probably that last decade of actual record making in the sense of that type of schooling pre pro tools. I mean, all those records I worked that did so well, there was no pro tools, you know, um, that's the common denominator there. And, uh, but, you know, like I say, we're, and it's not so much like changing an in pro arrangement in pro tools. I'm talking about sitting with a band in a rehearsal room with them blaring their amp, you know, and getting those tempos, right. Working with clicks and getting the changes and the trans, the from part to part the transitions um things like that that are oh we'll fix it in prose oh we'll do it in prose this is all worked out and a feel like we did when we did 10 uh program 10 the the majority of the time we spent tracking was getting the right take i mean and those guys were adamant about it and so it was all about feel if, it, if the whole song didn't have a feel we might do some edits on the two inch, you know, like we had a really good outro or ending or a bridge or something. We might, we might do an edit there from another tape. Generally speaking, they wanted to get that one magic tape. That's what we always said is, is that the magic one? Is that the magic one? And we'd have reels and reels of tape and the tape budget alone is more than what people spend on their whole projects these days. And we, you know, we'd start next to each take we thought might have something and then you know, you'd, you'd spend days and days of studio time just going through and listening back to the takes and deciding which ones are the right ones. So those times, you know, that was when you were making records, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's interesting because it, cause you did bring up that point of, you know, these days people aren't making records the way they used to. And yet I still feel like those records of back in the day are the ones that tend to hold the most influence and impact on people currently. You know, those are like, those are the classic bands, right? So it's like, you know, what kind of things should people be doing to make records the way that they used to make records? Well, I mean, not, and not to like be, you know, in love with the past. And I don't want to, you know, I love every, I love my Pro Tools. I love all my plugins. I love everything new. I love sample. I love all of it. So, but I think there are some lessons and some basics and, and basic, like going to school, you gotta learn your basics first. You know, there's some of that stuff there that applies no matter what. We just have new technology and we're in a new, it's a new time. You know, we don't have to live in the past and do, we're not gonna do that, create that necessarily thing unless you really wanna do that retro way like Amy Winehouse did with her stuff or whatever. There's places for that. But, and like we were talking, you know, pre-interview here, it's like, I've worked in every situation and like the greatest studios we're so lucky to be in um, to like the worst conditions and with the worst computers, like crashing every two minutes or whatever. I've had all that and you can still make some cool records. I've got, you know, I've had been able to get great drum sounds that people still talk about these days. And then I've had situations where I had three 57s in a garage and I go, that's the best drum sound I've ever got, you know? So, it's, you know, it's all relevant to where you are, what time, what you're doing and all that. And you just got to draw from all your experiences and all that. But, and, you know, I'm not going to say are there times when I want this tool or that tool or this, that, 
yeah, then there's sometimes where you just got to work with what you got. And sometimes that's what made it cool. Um, sometimes not. Sometimes you're going, damn, this would be a lot better if we had this. So, you know, you, it is what it is. You've got to play with what's in front of you. If you want to go that extra distance and you think something else is going to make it better, then that's what you got to do. Um, there's producers who, you know, they don't care. They will get what they need to get that record done the way and the budget they need or whatever. And then there's times you got to do it another way. So I, I really believe it's all tenacity, creativity. Um, but we put a, a dot on, you know, like I was saying earlier, it goes back to how prepared you are, how good is the band, you know, how, like some people said, well, you got this and them and you, we were able to do it with them. And I'm like, yeah, but they're really good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Pearl Jam was really good. You know, or you got a drum sound. Well, Josh Freeze is a really great drummer, you know. So you, you've got to you gotta come in with you know your material. You gotta you gotta have all guns firing if you even think. Cause honestly, let's face it, if you're a killer band, everybody's awesome, you literally could put up one mic in the room and it's somebody's gonna dig that record because they're awesome players. No, that's a great point. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like if you're if your songs are good, if you have the right people, then, you know, no matter how you record it, whether it's one mic in a room or a couple 57s or maybe a huge, massive mic locker full of the best gear or whatever, like at the end of the day, you're still going to get something that is going to be attractive to people and people are going to listen to it. So, well, you had uh, you had brought up the topic of drums and, and drummers, and, and I wanted to transition a little bit to some of the engineering side of what you sure. what you've done. Um, and one question that I was curious to ask you about was like one thing that stands out to me whenever I listen to Pearl Jam's Ten record is that the sound of the snare is like such like a iconic thing. Like I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm a drummer and I'm biased to drum sounds, but like that that snare is just like an, uh, it's a very iconic sound. Um, so I was, I was curious to know, like, do you happen to know what kind of snare that was and, and what kind of setup was used to, to get that sound? Oh, yes. And, uh, I agree with you. <laughs> it haunts me still to this day. Um, it was a Noble Cooley snare we had. I have the number. It's really funny. Cause just like a month ago, I, uh, was looking at getting another snare drum. I've been wanting to get that same snare drum. And I text uh, Dave Cruzen, the drummer who, who you know, played on 10. But we're still close friends. And I said, dude, what was that Noble Cooley we used again? And he goes, oh, dude, you know what's funny? I just bought one. I just bought one from then. And um, so he gave me the model number. I can't remember it offhand. I'm so sorry. But it was a Noble Cooley. But more than that, and this was one of the first times we ever did this at studio at London Bridge is that because this is, you know, um, even though we didn't know this was going to be a big record and um, the guys in the band didn't either. And it's, this was, you know, when they got signed, they'd already gone through Love Bone and everything. So this was kind of a lot, you know, kind of a second chance type thing um, record deal for them in a way. So they were like, they didn't have the hugest budget in the world yet, you know, or anything. So it was like I said, nobody knew what was even going on here. Oh, we're just, you know, Michael Goldstone, the A&R guy, believed in Stone and Jeff. So let's try something again. So, but they were very like, we got to, this has got to be good. And so Rick said, well, you know, I think we should, you know, 
let's get the drums tuned every day. And like, how, you know, so I'd never even heard of that. We're going to have a guy come in and tune the drums every day. That's wow. That's amazing. That's major label, man. Um, so, uh, Kippinger, uh, makes famous snares. Now you can look them up online. Um, uh, uh, Matt Cameron from, you know, he, he uses those all the time. He's like boutique guy who makes snares. Well, this is before he did that yet. And he was kind of a, um, locally known drummer guy, uh, I think he was a jazz guy or something. So Rick knew him from that, that world. And, and, um, and he happened to make cymbals and drums on the side, hobby type thing. You know, he's a drum nerd, you know, he's a drummer. And so he goes, well, let's hire him to come in and like in the morning, every morning he'll show up or every two days, I think we might've had him or something. I just go through the kit again and make sure it's tuned up. Cause we were tracking for a good 10 15 days or something drums were set up kept up at least i think we did two month-long demos before we even did the record so my memory's a little foggy and all that but so he'd come in and tune that thing like a master and like i said now he makes his own drums and hand pounded cymbals and all that so that's the secret of that thing it was a noble coolie that kevinger would come in and tune every couple of days to that and it was just damn and not to mention the london bridge room you just can't read to this day i've worked in a lot of places it's still the best room i've ever best live room just a great live room um so that and then dave cruzum had you know such amazing feel that guy's got the coolest groove and feel is exactly what you know they they were after so but yes that's what that was so i we're still in the hunt for the Noble Cooley. And, you know, they're expensive snares. But it says a lot about just the sound of, like, a good drum with a good drummer and good tuning, right? Yeah, I mean, tuning for sure. You know, it was a good drum and a guy who knew how to tune it. And so you just put a 57 on it in that room and bottom line. I mean, that's the other thing about tracking them. There was no big tricks. Everything was just meat and potatoes. It was your basic setups, you know. Uh, you know, four four teams on overheads, 87s in the room, your Sennheisers on the toms, you know, it, all the classic regular mics you would use on a kit, nothing, no sound, no, nothing like that. Through the knee to two inch tape, boom, just like you would do. Same with the guitars, same with the vocal, everything was just no, no, uh, special tricks or crazy great microphones or it was, i mean they were good microphones but no like secret weapons or anything it was just well i mean like they they sound like they're very natural sounding drums but there's just something about the quality of the sound that you got out of them right and then don't forget then it went to tim palmer who is an amazing mixer and so him mixing it whatever eq and things he did to it uh doesn't hurt either <laughs> for sure do you know like was there was there any sort of like effects or anything like that added to like I, I know like a lot of guys would use like gated reverbs and stuff like that like you know what went into the we final did, mix with that we did the rough mix it uh when we did roughs for it it was just your basic lexicon you know reverb you have in the desk or whatever nothing big deal the room there was so much i mean you could use the room there so effectively um just the stereo room mics like were so effective is the best word i could say um 
that that just worked. I mean, the the drum sound on Wood from Alice Change, that is the drum mix in London Bridge. You want to know what the drums sound like in the room there? That's the class. That's it right there. No effects. It's mixed that way. And we mixed it there as well. But with Pearl Jam, now that went, like I said, that went to Tim. Um, and they mixed that in England. So at Rockfield. So, he, you know, he did his tricks to it that he did effect wise. Yeah, that, that's cool. Yeah, I'm always interested in that because I mean, th- like that that snare sound in particular is just it's so loud on the record, but it it's so clean at the same time too. And and usually when people have room mics that they're cranking to to make you know give a little more body to a snare or something like that, you often get a lot of the other crap with it too, right? You get the the cymbal bleed and all the other drums that are in there. That was something about the room there. I mean, I like I said, I uh, well when I you know I'd worked there for a number of years before I you know, got to let me start venturing out and being hired for other big gigs and stuff. And I was so afraid because I was like, I can't record drums without that. Like, I don't know how it's not going to sound. It became part of your sound. Yeah. And so now, and you know, I, I've learned over the years, it's like, you know, now I can record drums anywhere. It doesn't bother me. If there's, if I, I'll do a room mix, if I like it, I'll use it. If I, I just turn them off. If it, if it doesn't have something special, I just get rid of them. And, um, and just, work that way and create a space other ways. But at the time learning, that's all I knew. And I was like, oh man, how am I ever going to get, and then there was a period when nobody wanted room sounds because it was overdone. So, um, you know, then you learn that, but, but that's something about that room. Like the mics were quite far away, like almost the other in the room. That's a big room. Um, and it just worked. It just sat, nothing got overbearing. The sim, like you were saying, some, it just worked. You could lit- you could just put the room mics up and like snare and kick my- and you'd have a fine drum sound there. That's the dream, right? Just simple setups. <laughs> you know, and that's what we all got kind of spoiled, you know. We all thought we were so good. <laughs> you find out because somewhere else you're not getting that sound. It's like, oh man. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, another thing that I wanted to ask you about the 10 album too is that when I listen to that album, it it, it sounds like it's a live album, but minus the, the crowd sounds, obviously, right? Like it, everything is just, it's it's big, it's cavernous, there's lots of reverbs in the mixes and stuff like that. And I'm curious to know, like, was there any discussion about trying to have that kind of feel with the album? Or like, what was what was the vision going into that record? Yeah, I mean, that you just nailed it. That was exactly what they wanted. Um, that was the whole goal. I mean, that's a huge compliment because that means we captured that. The whole thing was that, um, like I said, everything was tracked basically live. Some edits, really minimal. Um, and like I said, they were always going after that magic take, that one, that one. Um, no matter how many times we did it, like I said, the tape budget, we, we went through so many reels of tape trying to get, you know, but they didn't want to get rid of or go over one in case, you know what I mean? So we just kept archiving all these takes. But yes, that was all what it was. That was all about the feel, the groove, this. Um, and like I said, it was pre-pro tools. So it wasn't all these stacking of things. And we did overdubs, you know, like when we got to guitar solos or if there's a, a clean part or something like that that had to be added, you know, there were those types of overdubs. And then vocally, you know, there was your typical how you do vocals, you know, there was takes and we'd comp them and things like that. Generally, it was a minimal overdub live record, really. I mean, that's basically what it was. Um, 
not you know, like I said, not a lot of like we didn't go for a bunch of crazy sounds or this or that. A couple you know little things like radio sound on some of those things um, we did, or maybe Tim added for ear candy kind of flourishes. But generally speaking, that's exactly what it was, and that's what they want. They they're so uh, they really wanted to deliver a, uh, a really true, honest record recording. You know. Yeah. Well, you, you guys achieved it. it. It definitely has that live feel for sure. And, and I, I'm also curious to know, too, like when you're working on a record like that, where, you know, you do have so much ambience in the track, there's there's a lot of people will crank reverbs in their mixes and their mixes all of a sudden start to sound really muddy and, and there's no clarity at all. But but that album has that clarity. So, you well, know, I that's Tim Palmer, man. I mean, he's one of the most brilliant mix mixers. I mean, if you you ever taken a look at his credentials, his uh, discography? I mean, he's mixed some of the best records, best sounding stuff. So that's brilliant move to have Rick produce it and Tim mix it. For sure. Well, I was just curious if it was the matter of like, you know, more of the uh, engineering side of things that like when you guys were tracking things, if you were cutting out a lot in, in that stage or, or do you think it has to do more with the arrangement that makes it have that clarity? I think both. I think, I think it had to do with arrangements and I think it had to do with, um, the way we tracked it, we were very, we were keeping it very organic and clean and there. So I think that gave Tim, I know I've talked to him about it over the years and, you know, it was a great palette for him to work with. He got these tracks that were just, nobody did too much to him. They were tracked just, you know, he had a great clean, you know, picture there to work with. Um, and I know, you know, if you've read articles or whatever, there is, you know, they redid mix it with Brendan O'Brien. And I know later on, Jeff, mostly, I, or I remember him like saying, man, I kind of wish we didn't have that wet of a record, that reverby, that all that stuff. It kind of bothered him because it wasn't as cool a couple of years later. You know, you wanted that more tight, dry stuff. I also, I was always a believer, man. I think that's what, made that record hit on radio you know is because of tim's doing that and then and the time of doing that it made sense maybe a few years if they would have done that a few years later it might not have worked it might have been a bad move but timing wise the way he did it uh i think that really paid off and it has become timeless um but it was all done classy you know what i mean nothing was cheesy or overdone or anything so well, I think like a lot of the songs on that record, they have like so much energy to them. So when you right. listen to it like that with everything very like live sounding, it makes you want to see the band, right? Because it's like you, you kind of have an idea of what you're going to expect, right? If, if the band sounded like... That's what they were all about. And they were um, so excited to be able to do live shows like that. And I know, you know, early on, the first Mookie Blaylock times they played, you know, they weren't a band who got a chance to develop out in the road or anything um although they all had experience outside of eddie they had experience in touring doing all that but as a group and with eddie mostly they hadn't done that and that's kind of a big deal and it took uh you know first couple of shows eddie had his back to the crowd and like and everybody's like oh this i mean it was kind of scary we're like oh i don't know if this band's gonna work you know i was like I mean, I honestly remember saying, well, 
hey, you know what? At least they had another logo, and that was pretty cool. Like, I didn't think it was going to happen. And then, you know, five shows later, he's climbing off rafters and jumping into the crowd. You know, he's the, the, one of the greatest live bands ever. So it's uh, it's funny, but that was definitely a goal of theirs, and they definitely wanted that to come across. So, I mean, they you know, they, they nailed what they wanted. Yeah, for sure. Well, to to transition to transition to something that is kind of on the opposite side of the spectrum. I mean, you went with the organic kind of sound with Pearl Jam. I know that recently you've been working on your own solo projects and you've got one called Skylines right now, which is infusing a lot of electronic elements and atmospheric sounds. And I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how that project got started and and, uh, you know, how how it came about. Sure. Uh, Well, it goes all the way back to like kind of my early guitar days, funny enough, I, I used to um, kind of skip class in high school and there was a music store not far, like walking, like literally like outside of the football field, there was this music store in this like strip mall. And I would go there, skip classes and uh, hang out and talk to the guitar teacher there and kind of learn things off from the jam sometimes, things like that. Just, you know, um, but there was a sampler samplers were just coming out a Roland S10 to be exact and um while I was waiting or just doing nothing they had it out there in this place if I just start kind of messing with it I'm like this thing that's crazy what it had like dog barking sounds like just stupid stuff you know and but it intrigued me and I started always thinking man what if I like what if you sample a guitar and that you know just just thinking whatever I ended up buying it like or getting it for Christmas, something. Ended up getting it instead of a guitar. And everybody was like, what are you doing? Why are you getting a keyboard? You know, it was not cool, but I just had a thing. And it sat for a while. I didn't do anything with it for a while. But I'd play around with it. And then, you know, there's a period there where like industrial stuff was coming out and like skinny puppy or things like that. And I was trying to get that and I started playing with it. And I, you know, I had my four tracks, my eight tracks, and I started just messing around with so it's always this other thing i played around with i was always into all kinds of music like i said earlier i worked at record stores and things so i was just had all kinds of stuff got very into anything english and all that and kind of went through my metal thing you know finding different genres so sampling and all that had been a thing for me um and then in like the late 90s there like chemical brothers and dj shadow things came out with that and I was really intrigued with DJ Shadow. And I started playing with him again. And remixes were big then. And I was kind of a little run, did some remixes for, for people. And so I just, it's always been this thing that I played with. And and when I would, I did so much guitar music, whether it was mine or all the records I'd be working on, or jobs, like that was a way for me to do something different because I, just to be creative, experimental. So, you know, I had all the guitar pedals and all the stuff I could ever want. So I'm just like, you know, I kind of just started doing, collecting those types of things. And, uh, and I always just been a fan of that. So I finally had some time or not even that I had the time. I made the time. And as I'm getting older and whatnot, I said, I want to do some kind of creative outlet. And so, and I don't have a band together and I'm still making records. I'm still working all the time. So the easiest way for me to do something creative was to have, you know, when I had time, spare time, I could go put on my headphones and play with my machines, you know, my samplers and and uh, different programs on computer and whatnot. And so I said, you know, I'm just going to put a record together and just put it out because I need to put something creative out. 
And yeah, the funny part is everybody's thinking I'm making a guitar record or this. Are you singing on it? This, that. And I'm like, yeah, it's probably, you're probably not going to like it. It's nothing like anything that my name's usually on. But, you know, it's just my own creative thing that I just wanted to do. And now that I've done it, I'm like looking for, I want to keep doing it because it's just, it's a cool way for me to be creative and make a different artistic statement for whatever that's worth, you know? That's very cool. Do you think you'll end up getting into producing more music in that same sort of style? I would always be into it. I find that, you know, usually anybody's doing that kind of music, they're already in deep on it. They already know their stuff. So it's not a lot of room for producing, but every now and then it comes in really handy because people, when a project comes in that somebody wants to do a loop on or do something electronic to add, whether it's rock or pop or something, they oh, you know who knows about that? Dave knows about that. So it's, it's helped me in those senses where I can come in to things um, and kind of get called into something because I'll know about those things. So I always thought it's a nice spare tool to have in my back pocket, you know, knowing about those kinds of things. So that's helped, you know. Um, I'm, you know, I also love pop music and things like that. So I always look like whenever I'm looking for certain types of projects, they don't come. I get the opposite. So it's funny. I got like James, I worked with James Blunt, you know, pop singer in England. And like I was totally doing something else. And then all of a sudden I'm doing a really pop record. And then, and then, you know, I don't do a metal record for 10 years or something. I can't get hit by a bus for that. And then all of a sudden I'll get three in a row. You know, but like I said, you know, knowing all those things, it kind of gives me extra edge on certain things in the studio. Or Totally. Because because often a lot of musicians are looking, especially ones that have been in it for a while, uh, for a while, like they're looking for something different than their normal go to sound. So having some sort of element that they've never incorporated before, you know, is appealing to a lot of people. So especially nowadays, everything's such a fusion, like anything goes. I mean, you know, it's not so you know, black and white anymore are, you know, you can't do this because that's not cool or that's not metal or this isn't pop, you know, you can, you know, hip hop's in country now. Um, electronic is in metal. Like it's, it's, everything's across the board. So uh, I find over time now it's been helpful that I've been so diverse. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And you're totally right. Like even, even just the technology, you know, I feel like these days, modern rock music has so much sampling in it. You know, maybe it's not sampling in the same sense as like an electronic production sense, but like, you know, you're still maybe adding some drum samples on top of your live drums and that kind of stuff. So there is still a bit of understanding about that kind of stuff, right? I mean, I just, like I was saying, I just did a couple modern type metal records and uh, there's, I mean, they're more manipulated than some of the stuff I do with, I mean, drum machines and stuff like basically you're turning the drums into a drum machine. Somebody's playing, but then, then I'm putting into pro tools and I'm, you know, quantizing it, basically chopping up and quantizing it. That's a drum machine technically. And then I'm replacing or at least adding to the sounds with samples. That's a drum machine. And so I'm basically turning this live performance into a drum machine um, and even the guitars now are so processed and so cut up and gated and this and that, um, you know, it's not, it's not like what I would have called like a, a mid eighties thrash record where everything's loose and fast and nothing's tight necessarily. Um, but that was cool. You know, 
a lot of times I know on this subject matter, I, uh, I'll get people doing, that want to do that type of stuff. And they say, yeah, we kind of want to make it old school. I'm like, great. And then we start, cause I know that. And uh, we start doing it and they don't want it old school at all. Like they, you know, they really do want a more modern sounding record, which is fine too. But the, the adjectives now are getting misconstrued. You know, it's like, that's not really old school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can't have old school and competitive and modern. Like they're, they're very different. Very different. Yeah. So <laughs> that's amazing. Well, I do want to ask you about um, just on the topic of samples and stuff, you know, especially because you've, you've just gone about making an electronic record and, and you're talking about making these modern metal records that have so many samples and it's almost like programming. Um, I know a lot of people maybe are a little confused by like how to pick the right kind of samples to, to use to maybe augment a, a real drum kit. What's your normal approach for that kind of thing? Ugh, totally depends. Uh, I'm still learning all the time because it's changing. And I'm trying to keep up. Uh, there's so many good specific producers now. Like there's some, you know, really specific metal guys who have a thing going and they, and, but they don't, you know, they spend so much time just doing that. They've got a great niche where I'm kind of, I'm jumping around a lot. So, uh, you know, sometimes I don't, if I don't have to, I don't use a sample at all. You know, I'm, for a long time, I would just almost refused to. I was just so over it. I did a lot of projects in the early 2000s where I was, when auto-tune was first happening and sample, and I was like so sick of doing it. I was engineering for a lot of bigger producers. So my whole job was basically tuning and sample replacement. And I was just like, oh, I can't take it anymore. So I kind of got away from that. But I will, you know, I'll use, you know, sometimes I use some old school ones like, uh, uh, Brendan O'Brien or Andy Wallace pack. I have a few of those. I've made some of my own. If, you know, if I'm trying to stay national, if I'm doing something that's kind of pop or even I did, I did something from fame studios recently, kind of a Tom Petty Americana record. And then I threw in some nice, you know, supplement snare sounds on that. Generally I want to keep it real sound and what they got. It's a great studio anyway. And usually I might just use this, the sample just to trigger the, the reverb. You know, so I have a clean reverb with no hi-hats or anything bleeding, triggering it. So there's that. Or if it's like a modern metal thing, um, I'll try to find the coolest, latest stuff out there. Or, you know, a lot of people are using the Slate Digital thing, sounds, drum got. I mean, there's so many there. So, you, you know, I'll just find those right ones that apply to what they're trying to go for, what their aggression is, or what, what's, you know, bands they're influenced by. Um, and especially with the kicks, like the kick, you know, has to be so tight and gated sounding and, and clicky and up there, but I still want to have the bottom end in there. So um, it's really, it's a, you know, just totally dependent on the, on the material really. Yeah. It seems like it's, it's trying to find something that blends in, sounds somewhat natural or sometimes cartoony. You know, it's not natural at all. Like a lot of the new metal stuff is not natural sounding at all. Um, but that's cool. If that's what, you know, that's that, what that genre is calling for. That's what people are digging. And that's what you do. Um, I always tried, I always want to side to the natural, but you know, who am I to say, I mean, then I do stuff that's completely unnatural. So you've got, sometimes it's about, you got to remember, take your ego out of it and your creativity sometimes. And, you know, remember that they're the ones who are the artists, you know, um, now with you know, and sampling is misused. Words sometimes like producing is, you know, some 
you know, these days producing can be make I'm a beat maker or I'm producing art. So it can be same with sampling. Like I'll use sampling, I'll forget how some people will interpret that. They think that I'm taking a part of a song or a loop, like a P. Diddy song or something. And, you know, that's not with my material at all. I'm sampling odd sounds or synthesizers or creating new things, more sound design type types of things. So, you know, that's a, another word that gets kind of blurred with numerous different meanings. So. That's a great point. I love it because one of the things that I feel has been happening a lot more recently on this podcast is people are starting to like be very vocal about the meanings of those words <laughs> and like producer is a great one. It, but I agree with it all. Yeah, I mean, you kind of have to be now because if you don't think about it and you're saying things, I'll, I mean, I've caught this happen. I'll, I'll do that and not think about it. Then I I read something back or hear something back for something. Oh, no, no, no. That's not what I that's not what I meant at all, you know, because I use it such a blanket term. And now you got to really realize that. Uh, there's more nuances to it all. So yeah, you had mentioned something a couple minutes ago, just about the idea of, you know, identifying what the genre is calling for and what people like about that genre currently. How important to you? How important is it to you to keep up with those modern, uh, like editing trends and that kind of stuff, sampling and all that stuff to to keep that modern sound? Like, do you are you feeling like these days you're trying to keep everything at that same level of like hyper editing or are you and i know personally you may want to go more organic but i guess there's always that balance right of like trying to find what's working yeah for i mean that's a great question great comment uh about the whole thing um yeah like any you know, of my career is taken different you know it's a roller coaster you, you're one period of time i'm doing more of one thing than another um last five years or so i've been doing especially with the uh, home recording scene and the budgets and things the way they are, uh, and COVID for sure. Um, I'm doing a lot of mixes and the times have just changed a little bit. You know, I've like really noticed it even, like I say, even in the last five years. Um, and I realized, wow, I got to set my game up again. And I, I had to start, you know, re cause you get late, you know, I think I know everything about, metal or rock or this and then you realize wow there's all this new stuff that i missed or whatever so you know it's a constant state of re-educating myself or staying on top of it so yeah there is that and funny you know like you bring that up because that's really what i've been doing a lot lately it's like getting off you know not being lazy about it, go what okay what's happening now what are people doing what are the trends and you know thank god we have like youtube now social media things and you can look things up fine so i spend a lot of time like saying okay what's going on here now how are people doing it and that's such a cool thing with like what you're doing with this podcast and different things where now you can find out you can find that information you can do it so once again it's like doing your due diligence to stay up with it. if you want to keep working and if you, you know, I, I don't have necessarily like a hit giant record on the radio right now. So I've got to be able to take the gigs that come to me because that next gig might be the one that blows up. I, everyone that I've done that's done well is not the one that I thought was going to do well. So it's like I've learned from that. It's like you just cannot predict the one record. So you got to do your best on all of them, you know, if you can. Absolutely. But I, but I think that that's a really good point that you do have to kind of just keep on top of what's happening because I think for a lot of people who get into the home recording world, it, in a lot of ways, it is kind of a old school way of production for a lot of, for a lot of those people, right? It's like 
you know, put up some mics, hit record, and we're done a song, right? And then they wonder why their songs aren't sounding as good as their favorite modern records. And it's like, well, because there was so much more that went into it besides just hitting record. So there's always so much more that goes into it than you think. Always, you know, rule of thumb, there's always more than you think. But yeah, you know, and it, you know, and it depends on what your goal is or what your, your, uh, you know, your agenda is. If you're, if you're just an artist and you're doing your thing and you're kind of engineering and doing your thing, well, then maybe you don't need to, or you or learn what you have to. Um, you know, there's so many, it depends what you're doing. For me, I'm trying to stay as a, as a working engineer, producer, mixer. I kind of got to know what's going on. And, uh, you know, unless you get lucky and you're in some niche there where things are just coming to you repeatedly on the same type of, genre or same type of thing or you got to run on one thing that's awesome stay at it master it do it um my career's just been one of those things where i've i've been thrown in a lot of different situations so and it's like i said it's benefited me to know i always try to prepare for the next thing you know like i mean i've, I've been thrown in a couple you know hip-hop type things and like guys didn't know how to work and mpc sampler i'm like i i know that and they're like you know that yeah, I, I know that. And then boom, you're in that gig and you, you're working, you know? So there's things like that. Like, you know, and of course, older I get, da, 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 thing, lazier I get. And I got to remember, come on, what's going on? All right, let's learn this. Um, I literally took a new piece of gear upstairs. I put in a separate part of my house where when I'm leaving the studio, I'm not doing it, nobody's around. I'm just going to spend, you know, half hour in that and learn that piece of gear enough to like, you know, just be fluent with it so that, and it, like I said, it comes down to what your gig is or what you're trying to do. If you're mostly doing home stuff and you're starting out, maybe, I don't know, or maybe that is really good because you do intern somewhere, you do go somewhere and you can pull out, you know, some knowledge like that, that somebody else might not have in the room. You know, that's golden. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Yeah. That's great advice. Well, I, I think that that's probably a perfect spot to to end this conversation here. But uh, for people who want to learn more about you, what's the best way for them to follow you online or learn more about the projects you're working on or maybe even hire you? Yeah, uh, my website, basically. I've got a website, DaveHillisMusic.com. Um, that's the best way, you know. Um, I, you Google me, too. I'm free. I, I show up. <laughs> online these days I'll, I'll put links in the show notes for this as well so yeah yeah my out. website's probably the best way that links to everything and all that and uh so yeah awesome and lastly are there any cool projects that you're currently working on that, that you might be able to talk about yeah um yeah we didn't get into this i'm actually uh just started uh getting into atmos mixes so oh nice yeah so the uh one of the studios i work out of uh i'm kind of stationed out of here in pittsburgh is called the vault um, she looked that up to uh, in Pittsburgh and a uh, beautiful Neve console. And actually I took my Studer tape machine that Pearl Jam 10 and all those records were recorded on, moved it out here and that's there. Uh, but uh, we started, we're getting into Atmos. So we got an Atmos studio there. So my whole thing now, I just got obsessed with that. Like I was like dragging my feet on it. Ah, do I need to? And I started and now I'm obsessed. So, well, it just goes back to what you just said about, you know, keeping on top of what's what's new. Right. So, well, I was afraid of I didn't want to learn have to learn another new thing. And then I heard it and played around with it. And I went, oh, God, I'm sucked in. Let's do it. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my next new venture right there is doing um, 
Atmos mixes, maybe some catalog stuff and things like that. I got a couple new records coming out. I've done for some other bands, um, but it's all on my website. Amazing. Well, I'll have to check it out because, yeah, especially that Atmos world right now, it's it's so interesting. Like, I feel like in the last few months or so, I've heard so many engineers talking about getting into it. And from some of the samples that I've heard of it, it it's it's definitely an incredible thing. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out in the audio world. But really, I, I that's why I was a little, you know, reluctant about getting into it. But once you kind of play with it and you're in a real room with like, you know, especially like an, an up mix compared to actually doing a mix. That's what sold me. I was like, and I did one of my own songs, my own off my record. And when I heard the, I was like, Oh dude, why'd you do this to me? <laughs> one of those things. It's pretty addictive. You're like, Oh no, I'm sucked in. Yeah. It's just, it just brings a new world to your, your mixing skills already. Right. Like, I mean, now you've, you've got a whole, a whole other dimension that you can mix in. Yeah. So. It's not as hard too as I thought it was going to be, but it definitely, it made me smile when I heard, I was like, and that's always a good sign. Like, I, I'm not jaded. I smiled, <laughs> you know, it's like, this is cool. Like I was having fun. So I'm like, okay, this is a good thing. Amazing. Well, well I'll have to have you back on here. We'll just talk all about Atmos and, and what's going on there. <laughs> sure. Awesome, man. Well, Dave, thank you so much for taking the time to, to do this podcast. I really do appreciate it. Appreciate you having me on. It's fun. So that was my interview with Dave Hillis, and that was a lot of fun. I love hearing the stories about what it was like to be in Seattle back in the day when all of this stuff was happening and all of these massive bands were just getting started. And it's fun to hear just how, you know, everyone was just friendly and like it was just a bunch of people just hanging out, playing gigs, sharing gigs with each other and all that stuff. Um, you know, I think that's a really magical time in musical history. So it was very cool to hear from someone who was involved in it, not only as a fan of music, but as a musician himself. Himself, and then ultimately as someone who worked on the records that we all know and love to this to this day. So very cool to have Dave on the show. And I love just hearing all of that insight. And it was great to learn a little bit more about that snare sound on the Pearl Jam 10 record. Because yeah, that, that album to me, like that is one of the most defining factors. And maybe it's just because I'm a drummer. And, you know, I nerd out about the sound of snare drums on records. But like, to me, like, Sometimes a snare on a record, it just has its own unique personality and something that I think drummers just gravitate towards, right? I think it's, you know, like a guitar player would gravitate towards a guitar tone. Drummers gravitate to the sound of snare drums for some reason. So it was really cool to hear what they used on that record and what that process was like to make that sound. So I hope that you enjoyed that podcast, and if you did, please make sure to subscribe to this so that you are notified about all new episodes as they go live, and also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That's where I help musicians with creating pro-sending recordings from their home studios, and on that website, I've got a ton of great resources designed to help make the process of mixing and recording your music easy, and one resource that you're definitely going to want to check out is called The Mixing Mindset. This is an Amazon number one best-selling book that I put out, and inside of this book, we go through step-by-step -step what you need to pay attention to as you're mixing, what to be listening out for, when to be boosting and cutting with EQ, when to be using compression effects, all that kind of stuff. It really takes out all of the guesswork of the mixing process and makes it very straightforward for you. So once again, make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset and it's available at MasterYourMix.com. So that's it for this episode, guys. I hope that you enjoyed it and we'll talk in the next one. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.